0: How many of you received my email last Saturday? Oh, come on, I hope it was more than that. Cancelling last Sunday's worship service, that email. Uh, In it, I included a series of questions regarding Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so the vast majority of you have had a full week to answer those questions, that means you sit before me as experts on the content of Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 14, and so I will be calling randomly on some of you, Tricia just caught her eye, I will be calling on some of you randomly to answer some of those questions, and you have no idea whether I'm being serious or not and we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 14, before we get there, I want to begin with what I'm going to call a tricky truth. A tricky truth. Why? It will help us with these verses. It will help us to to understand uh, what is being said. Without it, Uh, This passage poses all sorts of problems and difficulties. So I want to begin with this tricky truth. And to ease our way into it, I'm going to ask uh, a series of questions. You answer them on your own to yourself. Uh, These questions are directed at Christians. They are directed at believers. So those who can identify with what we witnessed earlier, these baptisms, those who identify with Christ by faith, those who are one with him, in his death, his burial, and resurrection. Question number one is this. Does God love you? I'm starting easy. Does God love you? Question number two is this. Does God see your sin? Does he see my sin? When we sin, is God displeased with us? Hmm. When we sin, Is God angry with us? Those are good questions. A while back, I sat down with a man, maybe a year ago, a professing Christian, an adulterer. And he was a little too casual for my liking. And um, and so I said to him, God is angry with you. He was floored. I mean, he was flabbergasted. What are you talking about? God is angry with me. I'm a Christian. God isn't angry with me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate me from his love. God loves me. God doesn't see my sin God isn't displeased with me when I sin. God most certainly is not angry with me uh, because I have sinned. Was he right? These are good questions. Good questions. Was he right? Now, to answer that and to make sense of all this, uh, we need to come to terms with this tricky truth. And the tricky truth is this. Believers, Christians, children of God. God loves us in two ways. That is the tricky truth. God loves us in two ways. I will personalize it, and I will speak in the first person singular. God loves me. Here's the first way. God loves me unconditionally. Right? What's he, what am I talking about? Here I am referring to God's love for me in Christ, God loves me because he loves Christ. It is unconditional. I am one with Christ. And God doesn't love me because I'm lovely or lovable. He loves me because I'm one with Christ who is lovely and lovable. That love does not change. It is eternal. It knows no ebbs or flows. It neither increases nor decreases. I've I've given the illustration here before. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher, walking in the countryside with a friend. They happened upon a barn, weather vane at the top of it. And at the top of the weather vane, these words, God is love. Spurgeon didn't like it. The wind was blowing and that weather vane was moving all over the place. I, I, I don't like it. Completely inappropriate place. For declaring that truth. Because God's love is unchanging. And there it is blowing in the wind. And his friend said to him, Spurgeon, steady on, steady on. I think you've misunderstood the point of the message. It is this. Regardless of which way the wind blows. God is love. And so God's unconditional love for me. That's the first way he loves me. His love for me in Christ Jesus. But there's a second way God loves me. In addition to loving me unconditionally, God loves me, you guessed it, conditionally. Ooh, what am I talking about? God loves me conditionally. Here I am no longer speaking of God's unchanging love for me in Christ Jesus. That is my position. That is my rock That is the foundation upon which I stand. An eternal love. God loves me because he loves his son. We're no longer talking about that. We are now speaking of God's conditional love for me. What's in view? It is his delight in holiness in me. His delight in obedience in me. Holiness. Obedience. Which are the fruit of his own grace working in me. God cannot help but love himself. He loves his image wherever it is found. And when he finds his image in his people, he delights in it. He delights in their conformity to his image. He delights in their holiness. He delights in their godliness. He delights in their obedience. This delight, this love changes, it is conditional. Upon what? My obedience. It does increase and decrease. Let me just give you two passages. The first out of John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What's that about? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Sounds conditional to me. John 14. If you keep my commandments, I will love you. And I will manifest myself to you. You see, God loves his people, his children, in two different ways. There is again his unconditional, unchanging love for us in Christ it does not increase, it does not decrease. There is secondly his love, that is his delight in holiness in us, which is the result of his own work in us. It does increase and decrease, commensurate with what? Our obedience. So here's the, here's the, here's the situation. When I disobey, does God love me? As a Christian, when I disobey, does God love me? Yes, if I am speaking of his, unconditional love for me in Christ Jesus. It doesn't increase, it doesn't decrease because it isn't dependent upon me. It is not contingent upon my performance. He loves me because I am one with his beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When I disobey, however, his conditional love for me, that is his delight in me, actually what? Decreases. He is what? Displeased. Dare I say he is what? He is angry. That's a big pill for us to swallow because it runs contrary to much of what we hear today. The prevailing wisdom is this. God loves me. Um, God no longer even sees my sin. And God is never displeased, never frowns insofar as I'm concerned. And it's always just constant. My enjoyment, my abiding in his love is one unchanging constant. No, it is not. He loves us in two ways. Unconditionally in Christ Jesus. Conditionally, that is conditioned upon, contingent upon holiness, godliness, obedience in us. And so imagine this scenario by way of comparison. It's not perfect. Don't press it too hard. We have a father and son. Father and sons in this auditorium. And the son crosses a line. He does something just crosses the line. You fill in the blank. You come up with whatever scenario you want. Dad finds out. He is displeased. He is angry. And he, rightly so, disciplines his son. The father's unconditional love for his son has not changed, has it? As a matter of fact... His displeasure and the expression of his displeasure with his son is a manifestation of what? His love for his son. Here's the question. At that moment, under discipline, when he sees his father's brow furrowed and he knows his father is not pleased, he knows his dad is angry, is the son abiding in his father's love? What do you think? Is he enjoying it? Well, this is as good as it gets, Dad. You and me, right? Just like this. He is not. That is our relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, that is our relationship with God. We need to be clear on that tricky truth. Otherwise, Colossians 1, 9 through 14 remains closed to us. Because in these verses, Paul paints for what? Us for what? A picture of a life that is pleasing to God so follow along as I read it now for us. Paul writes, verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now go back with me, not to verse 9. All the way back to verse 3. What does Paul state here? We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard. And so what is Paul doing at the outset of verse 3? He is praying. He is praying why? Because he's heard something. He has heard something from Epaphras. He's a minister in the church at Colossae. Epaphras has brought a report to Paul, who's in a prison cell in Rome. So Paul has heard the report. Because he has heard, he prays. In his prayer, he begins by what? Giving thanks. And so we have that thanksgiving from verse 3 all the way through to verse 8. Now look at what we read in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, he's already made that point back in verse 4, but he's repeating it. We have not ceased to, he repeats it again, pray for you. But he's no longer thanking God for the believers at Colossae. What is he doing? Asking. And so he has shifted from what? Thanksgiving to petition. What this is, is one huge prayer from verse 3 all the way through more or less to the end of verse 14. A huge prayer. And in the first half of this prayer, Paul is giving thanks to God for the Colossian believers. In the second half of this prayer, Paul is making a request on behalf of the Colossian believers. And I want us to hone in on three characteristics of this request. The first, number one, is the content of Paul's request. What is he requesting? Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, here it is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's a little wordy. Let me give you three details in the verse, three details to help us grasp it and then I'll sum it up in one compact statement. What it is Paul is requesting, the content of his request. But just bear with me, three little details. The first is that phrase, you may be filled. That's the passive voice, isn't it? You may be filled. It, asks us, it leaves us asking the question, by whom? It is what we call a theological passive. May you be filled by whom? By God. So we need to be clear on this. What Paul is requesting is something that God does and God alone. We do not fill ourselves. We don't conjure this up ourselves through our effort. No, he goes before the throne of grace, he goes before the Almighty, and he has this request that you may be filled. Filled by whom? Filled by God himself. Second little detail with the knowledge. With the knowledge. Uh, Years ago, uh, I'm going to give you a little, just a brief Greek lesson. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, and I've I've tried to live by it ever since because I think he's right. He said, Greek, when it comes to preaching, Greek is like undergarments. Undergarments are very useful, but they should never be seen in public. That was his point concerning Greek. Very useful when it comes to studying, but never show it in public. But we need to show a little bit of Greek in public here to understand exactly what he's requesting. Knowledge. The normal word for knowledge in Greek is gnosis. We're probably all familiar with that. A lot of our English words today derive from it, gnosis. That's not the word here. That's telling. There is a prefix. Paul puts a prefix on the front of the word. Epignosis. He is speaking of what? Full knowledge. His point is what? I'm not talking about head knowledge. I'm not talking about you filling your head with a bunch of facts. I'm not talking about you, you knowing all the Bible stories. I'm not talking about you memorizing a bunch of verses. I'm not, prepared, I'm not talking about you being able to give all the pet answers to all the key questions. No, I'm speaking of a knowledge. That yes, must begin in the head because their knowledge must have an object, content. But it is a knowledge that is full, meaning it moves beyond the realm of the brain and it grips what? The heart and the entire life. Very important detail. Third important detail is this, that you may be filled with the knowledge of what? God's will. And his will is revealed where? In his word. We put all that together, pack it all together, and here it is, simply put, in succinct terms. Paul is asking God to give them an ever-increasing ability to think and to act biblically. That's it. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? That's, that's what he's praying for. He is praying that God would give them, by extension, us, give us an ever-increasing, it never ends, it's always increasing, an ever-increasing ability to think and to, therefore, act biblically. That is the content of the request. Second characteristic of the request I want you to notice is its purpose. It brings us into verse 10. It's a purpose clause. Look at the first couple of words in verse 10. So as, uh, so that. In order that. And so I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as. In other words, I have something else in view. Uh, You being filled. You being filled with the knowledge of God's will, will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is you increasing in the ability to live and think biblically and spiritually. Understand this. It is merely a means to an end. I have something else in view. I have another purpose in view. So as, here's what it is. You walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That little verb, walk, has a rich biblical heritage. Paul uses it several times in his epistle to the Colossians. Oh, a beautiful study. If you're looking for something profitable to do this afternoon, find the seven walks in Ephesians. And for Paul, walking is synonymous with living, a rich biblical heritage. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, where God declared to Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. To walk before God is to live a blameless life. To walk before God is to live in sincerity of heart. And this is a walking which is in response to his grace. And so as Abraham experienced God's grace, those wonderful covenants and promises, he walked blamelessly before God. And Paul is employing the same idea here. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to, to have this ever-increasing ability to act and think biblically so that you might walk, you might live. How? In a manner worthy of the Lord. That is the one who has given himself for us. Fully pleasing to Him. And so God might actually see His image reflected in you. God might actually see ever increasing conformity to His will. God might actually see, whether in small or great, the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of holiness, and with this He will be well pleased. But the key, it hinges upon this knowledge, this request. This constant daily filling and refilling and refilling, increasing and abounding in this practical knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here's the problem as I see it. Here is the huge problem as I see it. When it comes to the Christian faith, most people are content with a superficial knowledge. That's it in a nutshell, folks. When it comes to the Christian faith, Most people are content with a superficial knowledge. Yeah, they know. I've heard it all before. Preacher, tell me something I haven't already heard. I don't care what you know. I care how you live. This is an inclinational knowledge. It is a transformational knowledge. And far too many, far too many of our young people, they content themselves with a superficial, knowledge. I know that. No. Friend, the question is this. Do you live it? You imagine this situation. Man in his 40s goes to see his doctor because he's been feeling just terrible for about a week. Ugh, just terrible. Goes to see his doctor. His doctor checks him out. Examination. Runs some tests and then sits down. Draws face to face. Nose to nose with him. And says, look. This is the way it is. You are 80 pounds overweight. Your triglycerides don't even register. They're off the chart. Blood pressure, I've been in practice for 30 years, and I've never seen anything like it. Um, It's time to hit the gym. It is time to change your diet. It is time to get serious about these things or... uh, Next time I see you, it's going to be your funeral because you are a walking time bomb. All right? The man sitting there just goes pale white, mouth hanging open, eyes can't even blink. Finally, gasps, uh, "Yeah, uh, I hear you, Doc. I get it." He leaves Glen Rose Medical Center, goes straight to the Green Pickle. I have nothing against the Green Pickle. All things in moderation. <laughs> he begins with fried pickles. Proceeds to the jalapeno burger, which I do recommend, by the way. (laughs) Extra onion rings, extra french fries, and washes it all down with a sweet iced tea to which he adds enough sugar that his spoon will stand upright in the middle of the cup. What kind of knowledge is that? Hear my words, please, friend. Hear my words. It is useless. How many professing Christians running around today with a useless Knowledge. Useless. Who cares what you know? Useless. How are you living? Paul is not praying for our brains to be filled with facts. He is praying for a full knowledge. Filled with the knowledge of God's will that will grip our living. Resulting in what? A change to life. The way we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what? That we might be fully pleasing to Him. Friend, is your knowledge... When it comes to the Christian faith. Is your knowledge useless? Paul is praying for heart. Not head knowledge. He is praying for inclinational. Not notional knowledge. He is praying for practical. Not theoretical knowledge. He is praying for transformational. Not superficial knowledge. That is the purpose Of his requests. How do I know if I have that kind of knowledge? That's a great question. How do I know if I'm being filled with that kind of knowledge? How do I know if I'm walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? How do I know if I am fully pleasing to him? I'm so thankful by the Spirit of God that Paul didn't stop there. He answers that question. It brings us to the third characteristic of his request, the result. And it brings us into verses 10 through 14. And to understand verses 10 through 14, we need to begin with what? By identifying the fact that in these verses, there are four, count them, one, two, three, four, participles. Uh, Participles. What's that all about? Johnny. First name that came to my head. Johnny walked down the road uh, wearing a yellow raincoat. Drinking Starbucks coffee, listening to his Walkman. Forgot to mention, John, he's 100 years old, but there he is walking down the road. He's wearing a yellow raincoat, he's drinking Starbucks coffee, and he's listening to a Walkman. What's the main clause? He walked down the road. The other three clauses are what? They are participles. Doing what? They modify, they qualify the first clause. They're telling us how or what he was doing as he walked down the road. That's what we have here in this prayer. The main clause is right there at the outset of verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the main clause. Now we have four participles, qualifiers, modifiers, to show us exactly what that looks like. It doesn't leave us in any doubt. Let me just pinpoint them for you, then we'll go back and look at each in particular. Number one, right there, middle of verse 10, bearing fruit. That's participle number one. Bearing fruit in every good work. Here comes participle number two. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, it's tricky because the English translators, they mess it up here, they lose it. Mine says, may you be strengthened, but it's actually being strengthened. It's a third participle, qualifier, modifier. And then the fourth, into verse 12. Giving strength. Thanks, And so how do I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? I do so four ways. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, and giving thanks to the Father. That's how I do it. That's what it looks like when I'm walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what it looks like when I'm increasing, ever increasing, in this ability to think and act biblically. Look at number one, increasing in fruit. The first result, so as to walk in a manner, verse ten, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in fruit. We've heard that word before. Whenever you stumble across a word, especially in Paul's epistles, go back to the first reference where it's found. In this case, it's found back in verse six, which has come to you. He's speaking of the word of truth, the gospel proclamation of the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. In that passage, he has identified the fruit. He has spoken of their faith in Christ Jesus. He has spoken of their love for all the saints, and he has spoken of their hope. He repeats the second in verse 8. He has made known, that is, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That is the fruit that is in view. The fruit that is in view. As we are filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. As we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is this. We will increase in fruit. Primarily we will increase in love. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. How do I love my neighbor as myself? Paul tells us in Romans 13, I obey the law. That's it. I obey the law. Second table of the law. I bear fruit when I love my neighbor. I love my neighbor, I love others, by not committing adultery. It's very, it's very simple, folks. I love others by not committing adultery. Not simply talking about the physical act of adultery, but what resides inside. And I put to death lust and everything that lurks and is associated with it. And I put on what? Purity in word and in thought and desire in deed. And as I do that, I'm expressing my love for others, abounding in fruit. I love others by not committing murder. Again, in the first instance, I'm not talking about the act. I'm talking about the realm of the heart. I put to death anger, you know, that kind of wrath kindled by envy and jealousy. And I, and I seek the best interest of others. And by loving them in that way, I am actually bearing fruit. I love others not only by not committing adultery, not only by not murdering, but by not stealing. I uphold their interests, their rights when it comes to their own possessions. I seek their well-being and the well-being of their goods. I love others by not coveting. I rid myself of envy. I rid myself of jealousy. And so as I am transformed by the gospel, and as, and as God's will resides and abides in me, and I abound in this knowledge of his will, I will begin to walk in this manner worthy of, this, of the Lord. And it is evident in the fact that I'm increasing, abounding in fruit. That fruit is what? It's simply my love for others. That love for others is what? It's simply my obedience to the second table of the law. The second modifier is this, increasing in knowledge. Not the knowledge of God's will in the verse 10, but increasing in the knowledge of God proper. God himself. Same word in the Greek. It's epignosis. It's a full knowledge. It is speaking of familiarity. It is speaking of acquaintance. And so I'm all for reading Calvin's Institutes. I'm all for reading systematic theologies, but only insofar as through them the Spirit of God It creates in us a greater awareness of familiarity with God himself. I know my wife better today than when we married 22 years ago. Christian, do you know God better today than you did two years ago? Ten years ago? Twenty years ago? Are we increasing in our familiarity with him? How do I know? Well, this kind of knowledge is a sanctifying knowledge. That's how I know. In other words, this kind of knowledge of God makes sin ugly to me. Friend, if sin isn't ugly to you, I don't care what you profess. You don't know the first thing about this God. It is a sanctifying knowledge. And it is a satisfying knowledge. Meaning what? Not only does it make sin ugly to me, But it makes God good to me. And I find the peace and joy in God. In God alone. If God is not my greatest satisfaction and delight. I do not know him very well at all. This knowledge is of necessity. A sanctifying knowledge. And it is of necessity. A satisfying knowledge. This God is the king of kings, the glorious sovereign. This God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, to whom millions of years are but a moment. This God is boundless in his being, omnipotent in his power, unsearchable in his wisdom, and inconceivable in his goodness. His God dwells in light that is inaccessible, before him, angels, archangels, The highest of creatures veil their faces. The whole creation is less than nothing in comparison to this God. Do I know him? When I know him, let me repeat it. Two features. It will be a sanctifying knowledge. And it will be a satisfying knowledge. The third fruit, the third result of Paul's request, increasing in strength. Verse 11, may you be strengthened, or rather, being strengthened. Remember, it's qualifying that statement at the outset of verse 10. Being strengthened with what? My power? With all power? Whose power is this? Is this my ability to leap tall buildings with all power? No, according to His glorious might. It's God's power. It's God's strength. It's God's might that is in view. Might, power, so that I can do what? Perform miracles, great feats of superhuman strength? No. For all endurance and patience with joy. How boring is that? With all endurance and patience with joy. How boring is that, friend? That is the Christian life in a nutshell. We're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And we're called to rejoice in the midst of our waiting. And we're called to run this current race with endurance and patience. How do I do that? I do that when I'm filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Because that knowledge of His will strengthens me according to His power. Why? Because as I begin to think and act biblically, my mind is shaped by Scripture. And as I enter into the realm of Scripture, I behold two great truths and realities as I look back I see the providence of God, the object of my faith. And as I look ahead, I see the promises of God, the object of my faith. And as I find myself here now, walking and waiting and sojourning, that past reality, God's providence, that future reality, God's promise, that gives power, strength, might now to live how? With all endurance and patience with joy. I uttered this statement some months ago. I think it was maybe Psalm 123, in conjunction with Psalm 123. Here it is again. The Christian life always ends well. Amen, hallelujah. The Christian life always ends well, but the Christian life does not always go well. Do you believe that, my friend? The Christian life, just look at the saints in Scripture and the lives they lived and the turmoil they endured. The Christian life always, praise God, always, always, always ends well. But it does not always go well. Why? I uttered this statement a while back. Let me repeat it. God's purpose is not to change our circumstances and relationships to make us happy. God's purpose is not to change our circumstances and relationships to make us happy. God's purpose is to use our circumstances and relationships to make us holy. When we grasp that, oh, there is power in that truth. There is power in the word of God. Truths resting upon his providence Resting upon his promise, whereby as we are filled with the knowledge of his will, it imparts strength and might to us so that we can run the race with endurance, patience, with joy. Now we have a fourth result, the fourth participle into verse 12. It's lengthy, giving thanks. So in addition to increasing in fruit, increasing in knowledge, increasing in strength, Here we see these saints increasing in gratitude, thanksgiving. Giving thanks to the Father. Why? Paul gives three reasons. Number one, who has qualified. So the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All those glorified saints already there. God has qualified us to share, participate in that inheritance. Number two, verse 13. He has delivered us. From the domain of darkness, Satan's realm. And number three, still in verse 13. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we give thanks. Why? Because God has done three things. Namely, the father has done three things. One, again, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. How has he done that? Fourteenth verse. In whom, this is the beloved son. We have, here it is, here's how he does it. We have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. There was a time when I was a slave to God's wrath. There was a time when I was a slave to God's wrath. A child of wrath by nature. There was a time when I was a slave in Satan's domain. Under his power. A designated power, but a power nevertheless. There was a time when I lived under sin's dominion, and there was a time I lived under the law's curse judgment. Oh, but glorious redemption, the payment of the ransom, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby God's wrath has been appeased, Satan's dominion power has been destroyed, sin's dominion has been broken, and the law's curse. Has been nullified. And in the Lord Jesus Christ. God therefore has done what? He has qualified Stephen Ewell. I'm now qualified. To share. In the inheritance of the saints in light. I have been delivered. From the domain of darkness. And positionally. Although I have not entered into the full fruition. The inheritance. I have been transferred to the kingdom. Of His beloved Son. This is the essence of redemption. And it is why we give thanks to the Father. Friend, do you know anything about this forgiveness? I'm speaking to unbelievers. Do you know what it means to experience the forgiveness of sin? Maybe you get it. You grasp the nature of redemption. I mean, you've seen it. You saw it visibly right there in the tank behind us. Brian was in there. Those young people were in there. Down they went, submerged, up they came, pointing to what? The death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and our need for what? To be one with him. And when we become one with him through faith, that redemption is applied to us, the ransom having been paid in full, and we enter what? This realm in which our sins are forgiven. Have you ever been there, friend? Have you ever prostrated yourself before this incomparable God? Have you ever reckoned with yourself the life you've lived and the sins you've committed? Have you ever fully grasped and really understood the nature of your sin? We can boil it down, simply put, to this statement. It is simply this. Uh, You have put yourself where God alone deserves to be, the throne. You love yourself. Riddled with self ambition, self love, selfishness, which manifests itself in so many different ways. You have put yourself where this God alone deserves to be the throne. And this God has placed himself where you alone deserve to be the cross. Do you get it? Do you understand the nature of redemption? and the forgiveness that is offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the call, the command to repent and forsake your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus, whereby you become one with him, united with him in his death, burial, resurrection. Therefore, the legal charge, condemnation against you, paid in full, wiped away, and you are now pleasing in God's sight because you are one with his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been there? Let me ask further. Uh, have you ever taken stock of your life and asked, you know, am I, am I pleasing to God? I'm actually talking to you, Christian, now. Uh, you know, I, I read this text. Is that me? I see what Paul says there. Uh, That this this is the great design that even now we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That I I didn't even realize I could please God. Didn't know I had it in me. You don't have it in you. It's the Spirit of God in you. It's the image of God in us. But do I take stock? And as I look at my life, do do I see that I am increasing in fruit? Do I see that I am increasing in knowledge? Do I see that I am increasing in strength? That I am increasing ingratitude if not i need to repent and how many in this room this very day your heart's been cold a long time professing remember i'm speaking to professing christians your heart has been cold a long time you've been walking around like a bone out of joint for a long time but you've hid behind this notion me and god we're good it's all good he loves me yeah i know i've been i've been sinning i know i've been involved in habitual sin but I'm I'm claiming the blood, I'm hiding behind the blood, and, uh, well, God doesn't really even see my sin anymore, doesn't pay any notice to it, and we're all good. It's an unchanging love. You fooled yourself. Yes, there is His unconditional love in Christ Jesus. Unchanging, never increases or decreases. But how many professing Christians are walking around like a bone out of joint because they are actually living in a state in which God is displeased with them? He is angry. He is, in terms of an anthropomorphism, he is frowning. Because you're living in willful disobedience. You're not confessing your sin. You're living however you please. You're indulging in whatever you please. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. Willfully thinking, it's all good. I said the prayer, I'm a Christian, but now I'm just sort of living here doing this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect my relationship with God. It does affect our relationship with God. It is possible to please him. It is possible to displease Him. How many this very day living in a perpetual state in which they are displeasing God because of their willful disobedience? You need to repent. Examine your life in the light of this text and repent where necessary. Let me ask this question. How many of us pray like this? When's the last time I ever prayed like this? When's the last time you ever prayed like this? I know grandma's got shoulder surgery coming up. We should pray for her. That's good. I know so-and-so's out of a job. Yes, we should pray for them. That's good. I know so-and-so's recovering from such and such an ordeal. That's all well. We are to pray, God, give us our daily bread. It is all encompassing, all of our physical material needs. But how often is it that's all we see? And we've lost sight of the forest for the trees, right? We, We no longer see what we really need. No longer see and behold our desperate condition and state. Oh, Christian, make this your daily prayer. Pray scripture. Stop making stuff up in your mind. Open the Bible. Pray the prayers that are there. Request what God has promised. Echo what Paul petitions. And in faith, pray these things, these truths. And beg of the Lord God Almighty that he would fill you, fill you daily the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Oh, may we make that our prayer. That daily we would walk. We would live in a manner worthy of the Lord. The one who has loved us and given Himself up for us. And that we might be, not because of anything in us, but because of His power and grace at work in us. Pleasing to Him. How? Increasing in fruit. Increasing in knowledge increasing in strength and increasing in gratitude. Our Father, we make this our prayer this day and each and every day. We stand, we wonder, we marvel at your grace and your patience and long-suffering toward us. And we do confess our own hard-heartedness and waywardness and our slowness to learn and to apply. We pray that you would take so graciously and compassionately what we have declared and learned this day and apply it deep within, bringing our lives, yes, as we have heard into conformity with your word. And we ask it for the glory of your great name. We ask it for the advancement of your great kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.